Again, ladies and gentlemen, we ask you, please, please do not call us to ask what is the matter. We are endeavoring to find out ourselves. We have received this official emergency action notification with the proper identification indicating a national emergency. We know nothing now. We are watching our wires. bus drivers, we need office cleaners, we need architects, we need doctors, we need everybody. And if you drive the lower income groups farther out, they will never come back to the city. You will have a dead city and you will have a horrible upper middle class area in which I don't want to live whilst I'm very happy living as it is in the middle now. Hello, my colleague Ros Caveney. Hello, Mr. Tim. This is Music for Films. You may have found us via your podcasting application of choice or SoundCloud. You may have even found us via an elaborate system of prisms strewn hither and yon around the countryside. Or possibly carrier pigeon. Mm. I don't know how people have got here. Yes, or, or carrier drone because we have to live in the 21st century. This show is one that I'm kind of keeping for situations of national emergency. Rather like having to uh, create an emergency currency from the Queen's eggs. Mm. That uh, sometimes I don't get the show made on time or my laptop crashes or something so it'd be quite handy to have a show just kind of just on hold on reserve and i thought what we could do is we could showcase uh something that we do and you can find on our website thebeekeepers.com or our soundcloud which is also the underscore beekeepers which is music for streets we've we've gone on these sort of dreaves these wanders around london and i thought we just um we'll just play some of them and people can listen so first of all do you remember that time when we made the first show and we walked uh, from Stockwell Tube Station to where David Bowie was born? Yes. You're going to hear that. Ooh. Now, I've never been to Stansfield Road before. Neither have I. Uh, or I've probably walked past it and not even thought about it. So I just kind of blithely said, let's make a map of London films and link films to the underground. And let's have Bowie and the man who fell to earth. At Stockwell rather than Brixton, because attack the blocks of Brixton. Yeah. Um, very good film. Very good film. Love a, a fantastic score as well by uh, Basement Jacks. Yeah. But uh, when I was doing the Scala map over the summer, I did most of it in so July or August, I had no idea that for the first show we'd be walking down this beautiful little street yeah looking at these lovely houses and they've all got like real outside one which where they 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 put grey stucco with a crazy paving pattern on it gosh look at that that's like something out of yeah kind hearts and coronets isn't it yeah and lace curtains so it's very interesting to me that there's sort of way of looking at these very sad events and this sort of public mourning about a very great and important figure in London culture and world culture yeah. over three or four decades where you can sort of fall back on a sense of not the London of the residential bits of London as crucial I mean, we you know, we tend to make a very crude distinction between, oh, there's London, there's slums, there's suburbs, there's 
there's the posh bits, but then there's just these ordinary streets like Stansfield, right, which yeah. where, where Stansfield Road, where where people just live. And so, you know, when we kind of think about young David Jones in grey flannel shorts. Good God. Larking about. Viola, Viola shirt. Getting his feet x-rayed at Clark's because they didn't think that was a bad idea then. So when you went for shoe fitting, they x-rayed your feet in the shoe shop. Little were they to know that through the uh, assiduous sizing and care of uh, young David Bowie's shoes, one day he would have arches that were suitable for stack heels. Yeah. It's here, Roz. Oh, it's here. I think it's the 47. 40. Ah, sorry. Now, so I suppose there's a kind of quite impressive I managed to not be hit by that car yeah that would have made good radio yeah but so I mean <clears throat> so this is God he was born there yeah good lord now I mean obviously we've come along here but it's a residential area it's somebody's house it's not a shrine it's just a normal place with shutters up so <sighs> and a burglar alarm the fact that we've put this on the internet, the fact that we're broadcasting this on Resonance FM, we're not inviting the general public to come and pester the, I'm sure, very nice people that are in this house. Exactly, because there's a, there's a place in Brixton that genuinely is a shrine. It's an arbitrary place. But yeah, there, there is a, you know, he's a, a public figure and there's a public place where if you still want to show your respects or, you know, find some physical place to make, a, make some kind of connection to uh, Bowie's memory Bowie's legacy that's the place um, yes. the point of coming down here down Stansfield Road was just to remember the nice little not not very posh not very chavvy gentle little street where he lived I mean, it's, it's the sort of street where evening comedies happen. And of course, we've got many great evening comedies. We have indeed. On the map. The Lady Killers. The Lady Killers. Possibly the greatest of them all. Kind Hearts and Coronets. The other, probably, major contender for the greatest of them all. But in what sense is this world of 1947, this kind of post-blitz, post-bombing, bombsite London, the kind of London full of little kids in grey flannel shorts, larking about in gangs, hopping on and off um, buses, that you see in Hue and Cry? Yeah, reading Rupert Animals. Uncle Arthur likes his mummy. Uncle Arthur still reads comics. Uncle Arthur follows Batman. Reading the Beano. It's a more innocent age. That that kind of Dennis and Nasher. Yes. Well, I don't think Nasher happened yet. The pre the pre Nasher Dennis. The pre was, there, was there ever such a time, Ross Caveney, when where Nasher was not part of the yeah. Bino canon? My memory is quite strong, Tim. That 
Nasha was a a controversial late development. I, I've still got my uh, Dennis and Nasha fan club, fang club. I mean, uh, in the in the old days, it was badges. all about De- Dennis being mean to Walter. Well, he was a swat. Yes, and so was I. God, I hated Dennis. So that kind of um, rough and tumble world of children having London as a playground is kind of quite rough in many respects quite dangerous because there were a lot of unexploded bombs there still are a lot of unexploded bombs they found one next to Victoria Railway Station a couple of weeks ago Yeah, but it was a much more hazardous place for kids back then um, oh look at that so we've come to the end of Stansfield Road and bless there's a, there's a skateboard park yeah because some things do change but so what's the connection between that 40s world of bomb blasted cities being a playground and then the kind of world of 1965, 66, 67 that kind of well, psychedelic mod era well you see there's an intervening period which everyone sort of forgets because it's so embarrassing which is the period after the coronation after the festival of Britain when everything was supposed to be incredibly cool it was going to be the new Elizabethan age and it was going to be Dan Dare and Molesworth any fuel know that any fool know that um, and there's that decade between the end of rationing and the coronation and the start of swinging London which everyone kind of airbrushes out because it's so naff and that's the the era of Eagle Comic with Dan Dare Dan Dare and his advert his big headed green adversary the mighty Mekon is indeed you could say that the grown up versions of Dennis and Walter are Dan Dare and the Mighty Mekon because the Mighty Mekon is an evil totalitarian tiny weedy big brained person who is regularly defeated so by the square jawed Dan Dare who's, uh, who's Dan Dare's Nasher? Digby 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 the, the Lancashire the Lancashire bat uh, when I say Batman I don't mean Batman in the sense of swinging on ropes and firing off batarangs I mean Batman in the sense of an army servant because what you have to remember is that this is a period where officers in the British army have a soldier who's there to clean their shoes because we're talking about a hideously class-ridden society a class-ridden society and also a, a world where Britain still thought it had an empire and it thought at least in its imagination, that that empire, that thrall, could extend to Venus yes. and Jupiter. Yes. And, 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 for, and, and, and that Dan Dare and his friends would go to Venus and liberate it from totalitarianism. And that kind of overlaps with the, the very, very early rock and roll era, the Elvis before he went into the army Yes, because it's Gene also Vincent the period of the Cold War. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting, the iconography of 
the, the new Elizabethan era is all square jaws, just like communist propaganda was all square jaws. Yeah, like statues of Yuri Gagarin and cosmonauts. Yes. So this is the era of Telstar, of Joe Meek's early hits using yeah. weird electronic music that he made from bed springs yes. welded inside uh, tins of mints. Good lord. It's hard to believe, I know, but I hear her singing in the sign of the wind. And, and here is a building of that era, and it's called Blue Star House. What could be more Joe Meek-esque than that? Blue Star. As opposed to Black, Black Star, Star, of course. So and there's the Brixton Academy. Of, of blessed memory, but also blessed present. And just to remind us that we are in the 21st century, there's a Nando's. I mean, the reality is, is, in fact, Dan Dare has not conquered the universe, is that Nando's has conquered the high street. Yeah. It puts me in mind of the theme music to Jerry Anderson's Fireball XL5. Go for it. I wish I was a spaceman, the fastest guy alive. I'd fly you around the universe in Fireball, Fireball XL5. Do you remember that time when we were walking around Whitechapel talking about Jack the Ripper and then you told a story about um, how you knew a serial killer back yes. in the day? Yes, a story that almost all of my friends get told sooner or later. Well, I make a big I genuinely knew a serial killer once. Did you know a serial killer once? I knew a serial killer. Can you tell us about... Oh, I'll tell you the story, because it's an instructive story, because I used, when I was back in the 80s, to go swimming, and the uh, oasis in central London, and after swimming I'd go round the corner to a cafe called Diana's Diner, which was lovely, and I did good breakfast and did... Uh, quite good steak pies and did decent coffee for the period and I used to go there and I used to hang out there till uh, till the Café Munchen was open and me and my mates would hang out in the Café Munchen creating modern science fiction and comics but that's another story and because I was hanging out and doing my work there I got to use the proper loo downstairs off the kitchen the nice loo because Alf and Diana liked me. They thought I had a tone to the place. So I got to know them quite you, you well. You do add tone to the place, if you don't mind me saying well, so. that's probably true. One of, the, one of the many reasons to keep you around. Um, Sorry, I've digressed. Well, you digress, as you so often do. And... Hates the brand. Tangential and digressive. But anyway, there was this... There was this guy who was the relief dishwasher. And he wasn't a very good dishwasher, but he was a union official, so they kept him on. And... Uh, it was called Dennis... And you'd, see it, and you'd say, hello, Dennis. And he'd say, hello, Ros. And I'd see him around in the West End in various low hostelries like, uh, oh, um, not Billy's. Not Billy's. He wasn't a Billy's person, but he was a, oh, God, the place that's called the Golden Something that's just along from Polo's. He sometimes was in polos with young men, buying them a, a plate, of cheap, plate of cheap pasta, which they might well not have bothered eating, because 
Little did we know when we saw Dennis round the West End with young, young men that he picked up that many of them would never be seen again alive. Because Dennis was Dennis Nielsen. He was the Muswell Hill Strangler. He would take people home with him to Muswell Hill. And when they showed signs of wanting to leave, he would strangle them with his tie and then play put headphones on the corpses and make them listening to Wagner for hours while dead. And this was someone that I knew. In not well, not friend, not friend, but someone I said, hello Dennis, hello Roz. It is always the quiet ones. They are just like everyone else. It's all true. And the other nice story about Dennis is one Brian Masters who wrote his biography tales, which is that Brian Masters wasn't just a, a rip-off merchant. He used to visit Dennis in Broadmoor. And our, 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 some years after Brian had written his book about Dennis called Killing for Company. Um, very fine book. Very it. fine book, yeah. Uh, Dennis said, so what are you writing now? And he said, oh, writing another another book of one of you people. What do you mean, me people? You mean trade union organisers? No, no, Dennis. You people are serial killers. And Dennis said, oh, that. So tell me, what's this guy like then? And so Brian Masters started telling Dennis about Jeffrey Dahmer. And after a bit, Dennis goes a bit green. And he says, he stuck a drill in his head and dripped battery acid into his brain. That's disgusting. And, and then he goes, and... You mean he ate bits of them? I mean, I know I boiled them down to get rid of the bodies, but I never stuck my finger in the broth on a spot. That's disgusting. That gives, that's the sort of thing that gives us a bad name. He didn't really say that. That's kind of the subtext. Print the legend, eh? Print the legend. What's the punchline of that story? The punchline is that... Um, Diana and Alf, who had employed Dennis as a dishwasher, came and sat at my table and, after he'd been convicted of killing various young men, uh, strangling them with, with his ties, his large collection of ties, um, but not bow ties, ordinary ties. I don't know if he used a winds or not. Um... But he did put headphones on the corpses in order to make them listen to Wagner and see how good Wagner was. But no, anyway, that, but I digress. No, the punchline is that Alf and Diana came and sat at my table in Diana's diner of blessed memory and looked at me very solemnly and said, We need to tell you, Roz, that we never let him anywhere near the meat pies. That, uh, every time we tell that story, it sends a bit of a shudder through my system. I can feel the hairs on my arms standing up a bit. It's quite terrifying. I mean, you, Dennis Nelson. Yeah. Well, I mean, I may have met someone else. But uh, I think we should probably... Let's move on, shall we? Yes, thanks. So some of these wanders around London we've done have been quite 
quite scary, quite unnerving, actually. But the one I want to finish with now is, I think, the most fun I've had talking to you. Because I mean, we are mates, aren't yeah, we? Exactly. We're friends anyway. We've been friends for years. But this thing that we're about to play, um, we got quite emotional making this. And we're going to get quite emotional now remembering it, which is when we went to Tooting. Yes. Now, why is this bit of us walking around Tooting to the Granada Tooting and Old Bingo Hall so uh, emotional and important for well, us? Well, I mean, because Angela Carter was someone that I knew quite well. Having had her as one of my role models as a writer and as a person from my teens, because... I discovered her when she was still quite a young and new writer. And so she was part of my private pantheon for years. I read all of the books as they came out, liked some of them, liked others of them slightly less. And then I started to bump into her occasionally and talk. And then I was working at her publisher and actually got to know her quite well for a while and then we became a little bit estranged for a bit but we patched that up before she died but she died and she was a close friend of a couple of other mentor figures of mine who are now all dead and the Granada tooting was the cinema where Angela as a child learned cinema which was incredibly important to her so yes it is very emotional just personally i find this quite moving and i'm very pleased that we we made this sequence which starts off with us walking out of a tooting tube station wandering around the corner to an old bingo hall what i would encourage anyone listening to this to do is if you're in south london if you're in tooting go to the the granada in in, in tooting Play bingo, because it's a wonderful institution. And the thing is, what they've done with a bingo hall in an old cinema, an amazing, as we'll go on to explain, an amazing piece of architecture, is they've kept it. They've left much of it alone. They've, they've left these wonderful painting, paint, wonderful slightly faded wall paintings of, of knights and ladies and... Moorish merchants? Moorish merchants. And it's... You know, there's no pretense that it's not a faded, failing institution, but it's still lovely, and while it's there, you should see it, because one of these days someone will vandalise it all. It's a fading gem, and I very, very much encourage people, I'm sure Rosie would as well, too. Oh, absolutely. Go and see the Granada Bingo Hall in Tooting while you still can, because it's one of London's... Uh, it's not a forgotten treasure because people Mm -hmm. go to the bingo there are people using it right now but it's not it's not heralded it's not appreciated as much as it should be I don't think no but I mean that's true of so many I mean look at Leighton House yeah Um, and the Moorish Room in Leighton House yeah I mean which is um, this wonderful piece of Victorian kitsch so this is a little sequence from our company wall show where we talked to uh, Rosemary Hill, 
what a fantastic guest. What an amazing, yes, amazing. writer and historian Rosemary Hill is. She's also written a, a splendid uh, biography of um, Pugin, the mm. architect who designed the Palace of Westminster. But she came and talked to us about her collection of Angela Carter's poetry. Yeah. But because she's an architectural historian, she gave us this very interesting and useful insight into the history of Granada Tooting. And then you'll hear us on our our vision quest, our pilgrimage to Angela Carter's childhood cinema for Granada in Tooting. Yes. The thing about the Tooting Granada cinema is a very particular cinema. Um, there were two which were designed by Komisarevsky, who was um, the designer who was brought... He was a most extraordinary man. He was married a Russian exile, married to Peggy Ashcroft at, some, at one stage, a, a, a kind of amazingly exuberant designer. And the Granada company brought him in because the Odeons, of course, were all very sleek, Art Deco, faience tiles, clean lines. They wanted something very, very not that. And mm-hmm. they got Komisarevsky. Um, who created these things, which are exactly halfway between a Gothic cathedral and a cinema. And that sense that she obviously had sitting there, that it was both incredibly glamorous, but close to the guilt was all a bit chipped. Um, I th- uh, and the strange shadows, anything as, as strange as anything you were seeing on the screen. So I think it's very important to remember it was that particular cinema that yes. made such an impression on her, as well as cinema in general. Well, so here we are, next to a McDonald's, is the Granada Bingo Hall, which, presumably, in the 1940s and 50s, when Angela Carter was little, was the Granada Cinema. Ooh. We can't really get a sense of it from where we're standing. Let's see if we can find people. There is a door. There's a police looking for reception. And here we have halls. And the amazing ceiling. And spooky distant music. So, Ross, we've been transported into the Alhambra. We've been transported into the Alhambra, but from a Walter C. Scott novel somehow. Yes. And we walk up this elaborate, sweeping staircase, on the top of which we see a sort of vaguely Moorish version of a William Morris settle. This plaque commemorates the diamond anniversary of the Granada Tooting, 1931 to 1991, official, officially unveiled by Michael Aspel. Ask, ask Aspel. Ask Aspel. And Aspel will say, it's an Art Nouveau palace. Yes. A vaguely Moorish town. And we will keep, continue to talk about it until people tell us we can't. And here we have all sorts of doors and staircases. 
And now we're up at the circle level. Which is probably alarmed. Important, if you're playing bingo in this area any day other than Monday, you are responsible for your touchpad. Right. I've often said it. No, but we can just walk straight in. So, take away all of the bingo hall in Pelianenka and the plasma screens playing uh, adverts for cardigans and timeshare holidays. And here we have the view and you have the theme. And it really is a, a treasure. I mean, it's a mixture of theatre, cathedral, maybe not even cathedral, maybe mosque. But no cathedral images. So we're looking, we're, we're by the rake seating here in the, the Granada. The first thing you're struck by is the smell. It smells, it's got that Oxfam smell of upholstery, it's which is very the, old. Slightly fragile to, to the top. This is the thunk of the authentic, I presume these are the seats from the 1930s. And then vaguely the little smoking. It's a fade at a point where you can't quite make out what they're supposed to be of. It's quite like a commemorative picture of Edward Victor's tour of Canada or Borneo. Yeah. That you might buy in a, a cancer research shop. Hmm. Perhaps for its frame, not for the picture. Yeah. And it's lions. Lions on tops of triangles, on tops of paintings. And like I said, I still can't work out what the paintings are of. They look, presumably it's in Pevna. Let's walk down and see if we can work out what those paintings are of. But how extraordinary and how fortunate we are so just in London. For, this is basically how it was when Angela Carter went to the cinema here. Yeah. Only funkier and more faded. Because those colours would have been brighter and fresher. Sorry. I'm doing that thing of worrying about walking down the staircase. And then when we look down over the balcony with this very sturdy red iron rail there are all these little tables and chairs set out for bingo. people to play bingo and that's part of the reason why this building is still here and pretty much untouched is people may you know be mildly disparaging about bingo as a pastime but it's very popular people like it and thanks to people playing bingo here at the Tooting Granada. Oh, and this is a photo, this is a painting of a Moorish drummer and a Saluki dog and a painting of some medieval musicians. Bit of troubadour action. Bit of troubadour action. And here's some more medieval action, people with wimples and pointy hats. 
a very, very extravagant elaborate mouldings and of a very the abstract kind. Candelabra on either side of where the screen would have been. Yeah. With um lovely fake candles with light bulbs yeah. where the flame would be. Yes. And I'm standing next to this is one of the old spotlights. Yeah. Which now it's just is objet d'art, I see. Kind of yeah, left it here. Just is, left it here because yeah. they you know, moved it away, and there are all these little sidelights on the paintings, which probably have never been lit in a decade or two. Yeah. Well, that's rather moving. I didn't expect we'd get to find this here so easily. Now, we've, we've said this in, in the other programmes we've made about Angela Carter and the Company of Wolves that you did know Angela. Yes, I did. So this, I mean, you know, you're now somewhere where your friend went to, cin- went to the cinema. Well, my friendly acquaintance. Friendly acquaintance. Went to the cinema as a little girl and yeah. it's clearly had an influence on her she wrote about it there's a a manuscript of, of her handwriting in the British Library talking about this this auditorium yes and talking about it's the place where we find the fantastic the gimcrack gosh and it was all here voluptuous 30s architecture yes and it survived the war and it survived into the second decade of the 21st century. Will it still be here in a decade? Who can say? I very much hope so, and I hope people here listen to this. Respect and, and, and sneak in and look at it because it is faded, faded magnificence, faded glory. Gosh, I'm, I'm coming over all emotional. Yeah, so. I am as well. And, you know, come and play bingo. Play the slots, because that's what, that's what keeps this place lit and warm and... Lit, sort of, and vaguely gloomy. A cathedral of mammon. It's a metaphor for the state of, the state of the nation in the summer of 2016 faded glory kept going by a few people playing the slots and it is literally a few people 12 the gig is up sorry the jig is up and later this year that will be true of all those echoing halls in the city of London where the lights and the computers will go out one by one as everything goes to Frankfurt and nobody plays bingo in the city anymore. They'll turn the stock exchange into a bingo hall. Wow, so the metal's trading floor echoing with just the dust. S- someone taking a ping pong ball out of a glass box. All, all the 60s. <laughs> six, all the 60s. 66. All the derivatives. Zero. All the derivatives, zero from zero from zero equals zero. 
count zero. And that will be just before the whole thing is torn down, but not to make affordable housing, to make a car park for Russian oligarchs to put their tanks in. Well, I think that we owe it to the memory of Angela Carter and we owe it to our, our dear listeners on Music for Streets and Music for Films to read a bit of Angela Carter's book, The Infernal Design Machines of Dr Hoffman, which, and this is, this is guesswork and Angela Carter's not here, so we don't know, but I'm, I'm going to guess she had this space in mind. OK, find the page. When I had enough money, I would go to the opera house. The inhuman stylization of opera naturally appealed to me very much. I was especially fond of the magic flute. During a certain performance of the magic flute one evening in the month of May, as I sat in the gallery, enduring the divine illusion of perfection which Mozart imposed on me and which I poisoned for myself since I could not forget it was false, a curious greenish glitter in the stalls below me caught my eye. I leaned forward. Papa Jane and Papageno struck his bells, and at that very moment, as if the bells caused it, I saw the auditorium was full of peacocks in full spread, who very soon began to scream in intolerably raucous voices, utterly drowning the music so that I became instantly bored and irritated. Boredom was my first reaction to incipient delirium. Glancing round me, I saw that everyone in the gallery was wearing a peacock's green skull cap, and behind each spectator stirred an incandescent feather fan. I'm still not sure why I did not instantly clap my hand to my own arse to find out whether I too had become so bedecked. Perhaps I knew the limitations of my sensibility positively forbade such a thing might happen to me, since I admired the formal beauty of peacocks very much. All around me were the beginnings of considerable panic. The peacocks shrieked and fluttered like distracted rainbows and soon they let down the safety curtain as the performance could not continue under the circumstances. It was Dr Hoffman's first disruptive coup. So I went home disgruntled, balked of my Mozart and the next morning the barrage began in earnest. Well, there's nothing you or I can say to follow that. No, indeed. Our podcast is More Music for Films, and you can find it on thebeekeepers.com or your podcasting application of choice.